Exodus chapter 13. We're going to be in 13 and 14 tonight. I'm going to cover some theology right up front and then get into the story. It's one of the more exciting stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, but we're going to have to wait and go through some other stuff that's, well, it's a follow-on. In fact, there's a major lesson that begins this section, which is itself a continuation of chapter 12 and the entire Passover narrative. Chapter 13 of Exodus, the Shemot, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. And Father, we simply ask for your spirit to teach us and give us ears to hear, hearts that are open to receive. Father, help us to be wide awake to these things tonight and encourage us, Lord, with your word. That's what your word does. It brings such encouragement. It brings faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us as a fellowship and as your people, your children tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. So consecrate to me, he says, sanctify to me every firstborn. There's a lesson in this that we need to not miss. Many ancient cultures viewed the first fruits of the soil or the firstborn of animal and human as literally gifts of nature. So there, there was a, an elevated um, honor given to things that came first, whether it's the first fruits of the land or the firstborn of animal and human. But, but it was believed in these ancient cultures that they were gifts of nature, inherently holy, even to the point sometimes of considering these firstborn uh, people or animals, considering them to be deity, you know, an aspect of, of, of a god. Yahweh, the ever-present I am, makes it absolutely clear as he says, both of man and of beast, every firstborn, every first offspring of every womb belongs to me. The lesson here is that all life from the ground up is an act of his divine will. It's his choice. It's his power. It's by his nature. It's not a gift of nature. It's a gift of God whether the first fruits of the ground or the firstlings of the flock or the firstborn of the family of a man and a woman, if you exist, get this, if you exist, it's because he wanted you to exist. And this is something I've talked to my children about and I've I've spoken here before about. Our very existence is God-ordained. You would not be living and breathing If God didn't want you to, that should speak volumes as to your value, as to your worth, even when the world would beat you down, even when we would beat ourselves down, to remember that God does not make mistakes, that he chose to give you life, to bring you into existence. God, as our deliberate creator, is a fundamental doctrine of Holy Scripture. We're here because of him. 
He created us. He desired us. Psalm 139, verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And so the psalmist there is writing of his creation, of, of, of his own being put together by the hand of God himself. Isaiah 44, verse 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. No one else had a hand in it. This was God. This was the Lord who made you, who made me, who created all things. And Romans eleven thirty six 36 tells us, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. So he makes it clear, setting the standard, even prior to the giving of the law, as an aspect of the teaching of God, he begins saying, every firstborn is mine because you need to understand that I'm creator. The firstborn belonged to God as an offering, recognizing that all life was a gift or is a gift of his creative goodness. So we see first fruits being a feast in Israel, a festival, offering of the first fruits given to God, first of the ground and of the firstlings of the flock, which we understand Passover had to be the firstlings of the first of the flock. And, and we look at this whole thing of, of, of his creative goodness, God's desire for us to recognize where we came from. And the teaching tool that he uses is the offering of the firstborn. Now, we're gonna come back to that in more specifics in just a minute. What does it mean to offer up the firstborn, to sanctify the firstborn of the flock or of the husband and wife, how do you do that? He's gonna explain that in a moment. But next, Moses turns, in fact, he seems to take kind of a random U-turn to a completely different topic, one we've already been talking about, as he underscores the value of Hag Hamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it's not as random as it may seem. Verse three, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place and nothing leaven shall be eaten. On this day, in the month of Abib, you are to go forth. Abib, that, that was a month, it eventually would be called Nisan. I, I mentioned this before. When the people came out of Babylonian captivity, they would drag along the Babylonian calendar, which is the same calendar used in Israel today. And Nisan is the month, but Abib is what it was previously called. Abib means tender, as in tender green young crops. And it speaks of the March-April timeframe of the year. So you are to go forth and it shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Hivite and the Jebusite and the flashlight, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall observe this right in this month. So right now, they're heading out, it's day one. They're about to launch on the journey for the first seven days of the journey, unleavened bread. And a year later, 
Again, seven days unleavened bread. And a year after that, and it would be a perpetual feast for the people of Israel. Verse six, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days. And nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. And Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews are very meticulous about this today. Even getting all the dishes out of the house and having special dishes that they bring in just for Hag Hamatzot so that there's no chance there might be a, a hint of leaven on a dish or on a plate. They get all the leaven out. You shall tell your son on that day, verse eight, saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, as a reminder on your forehead, that the law of the Lord be, may be in your mouth, for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Note this, it follows on from the blood sacrifice. So first you have to have the Passover lamb, the perfect spotless Passover lamb, which was sacrificed the night before their departure. Now it's the morning of the departure and comes the feast of unleavened bread, which is to be eaten and celebrated during the first week of the journey out of Egypt. It's a great picture. Paul quotes Jesus twice saying, Galatians chapter five, verse nine, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. And 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And of course, leaven being the picture of sin, and that's what Paul is drawing off of as he speaks to Corinth, the church. He's saying, you're, you're, you're boasting that you're allowing a little sin to go on. It's going to mess you up because it's going to spread throughout the entire church. That's what leaven does. And listen to what Jesus had to say about this. Matthew chapter 16, verse six. And I think Jake was just there with the students, so this will be fresh on their minds. Matthew 16, verse six, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Understand that the history and the currency of Chag was deeply ingrained theology in Israel. To talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees should have been very clear language, and yet <laughs> the disciples were clued out. They began to discuss this among themselves, Matthew 16, 7, saying, he said that, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss this among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? I can see him looking around going, yeah. Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large basketfuls you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? Now, why does he point out those two miracles? Well, the first one, that is the five loaves given to the 5,000, they were Jews. This was in Israel territory. 
And so the, the 5,000 that were fed were a picture of, of Israel. How many baskets full were picked up at that time? 12. 12, as in the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, again, a picture of God's holy governance, but directly of Israel. So there's plenty of bread for Israel, but this isn't about bread. And he said, didn't you remember about the, the seven loaves or the 4,000? With the 4,000, they're now in the region of Gentiles. So the 4,000 were largely Gentiles who were fed with that miracle. And he said, how many baskets full were picked up? Do you remember? It was seven, the number of completion. As in, there's more than enough for the Gentiles. More than enough for Israel, more than enough for all the Gentiles. And then Jesus said, how is it you don't understand? I'm not talking about bread. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here's the point. Leaven not only indicates sin, but it speaks of the natural way of baking things in. Leaven is the natural way of going about baking bread. Leaven is a picture of the works of the flesh. And, and then, of course, of sin that mix all into our lumpy selves and puffs us up, just as bread rises with leaven. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Wait a minute, the kingdom's like leaven? I thought leaven was bad. Leaven was sinful. Leaven puffs up. Leaven gets all in throughout the dough. Exactly. And what Jesus taught us and wants us to understand is it's not a good thing. There be leaven ahead, even in the church. Even as the kingdom is growing among citizens of that kingdom. But when Jesus fed, get this, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, it was unleavened bread that is spiritually produced by his hands. Not something produced by the work or the leaven of humanity, but something supernatural. Therefore, unleavened, something pure, something perfect, something that only Jesus could do. He wasn't just passing out free lunches. He was teaching about his own sinless nature. And that's why they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Think about the entire context that you have the Passover lamb, speaking of Jesus and his sacrifice. Unleavened bread, speaking of Jesus in his perfection. And by the way, the disciples were there. They were with Jesus earlier at the feeding of the 5,000. They heard him when John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. It's not about bread. It's about me. I'm the one who can work in and through your life. But when I do that, I don't puff you up. I don't make you rise. No, instead, my glory rises. And so Jesus is that unleavened bread, is that picture of the Lord Jesus. He also said, by the way, in Matthew chapter four, verse four, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Remember, Jesus quotes that, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. He quotes to the devil who's trying to tempt him. 
So the two allusions to bread that we have from Jesus are one, that it, 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 he's the bread, and two, that the bread is the word. Well, he's also the word. So Jesus Christ is the bread that comes down from heaven, and, and he says the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that, that will feed us. Back in chapter 13, as Moses is discussing, or as, as the Lord is bringing forth now the, the law of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he says something that is a, a Hebrew phrase that this is the first time we hear it. First time we hear it, and it's Exodus chapter 13, verse nine, where he says, the law of the Lord. Literally, Torah Yahweh. The Torah Yahweh. The Torah. Torah law of the Lord. Now, back in Genesis 26, verse 5, the word Torot is used. Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, my Torot. And then in Exodus 12, 49, when he's talking about the requirement of circumcision for Passover, the Lord says, the same law, Torah, shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. But this is the first time in the Bible we hear the actual phrase, the Torot Yahweh. That is the law of the Lord. Torah. Torah is considered actually to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. We say in the Greek, the Pentateuch, but in the Hebrew, it's Torah. And when you say Torah to a believing Jew today, they'll tend to go straight to those first five books. And yet Torah is broader than that. In fact, as far as the Lord is concerned, if he speaks it, it's Torah. So the Torah of the Lord is Genesis through Revelation, my friends. The whole thing spoke by God is the Torah of the Lord. And so Hag Hamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is a fundamental precept of God's Torah, of God's Word. Unleavened bread, sinlessness, immediately following on the heels of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And Moses says, and note this in verse nine, it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the Torah Yahweh may be in your mouth for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Skip down to verse 16, Exodus 13, 16. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries, the NSAB, uh, NASB translates, as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And you know what happened? By the first century, and right up to present day, ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Hasidic Jews, wear tefillim. They will wear them. You can be on a flight to Israel. I've seen this. And all of a sudden, the tefillim come out. And they begin their prayer somewhere over the Atlantic, depending on the time of day, and they know when it is. And they begin those prayers. The, the tefillim, tefillim is a, a collective word for phylacteries, the phylacteries. And you may have heard the word used by Jesus and used in the New Testament. It's totapot in Hebrew, and it means frontlets. Frontlets, uh, it can also mean mark, but literally it's between the eyes that space between the eyes on the forehead, and what phylacteries are are little square leather boxes. 
And they would take these little square leather boxes and they'd strap them onto the left arm or hand, strap it on to the forehead during morning prayer. Inside the little leather box, because they took this so literally, the law of the Lord shall serve as a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the word would be in your mouth. And then again, a sign on your hand and phylacteries on your forehead. And, and they take this literally and they say, okay, well, let's, let's do that. Get this little leather box and they put passages of scripture inside. So it can be right on your head. I used to study that way in high school. You know, I'd lie down to go to sleep at night and I would not be ready for the science test, but I'd open the book and put it over my head and just hope that it sank in, you know? It never worked. But there are four main passages that are put in the phylacteries. Uh, Exodus chapter 13, verses one through 10 that we've just read. Secondly, Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 16 that we also uh, were about to read. And then in addition to those two, Deuteronomy chapter six and Deuteronomy chapter 11. Let me just read you an excerpt from each one of those. Deuteronomy six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. The idea is one of consistency and continuity of teaching the word of God. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And then he adds in verse nine, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so Jews today have a mezuzah. That's a, a little container that sits on the doorpost of the house and they'll stuff scripture in that too. I'm not sure how that gets in, but they, they'll put it there. And usually it's Deuteronomy chapter six that they put in the mezuzah. They also will put the entire chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 11, which begins, you shall therefore love the Lord your God, keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments. And then long about verse 18, you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons. So they get this concept that we need to have it right here and need to have it right here. And, and honestly, the, the tangible guy in me kind of likes the sound of that. Maybe Sunday we should pass out phylacteries. <laughs> There's something about it, you know, tangible reminders that have, that have a holy feel to them. Do we see that in the church today? In the Catholic church, we see rosaries. We see Christians who wear crosses. I myself, I gotta tell you, I love the feel of my leather Bible. I've said, I, I don't teach from my, from my phone, and, and some do, and they just pull up a Bible on their phone and teach right off it. I just, I like this tangible book in front of me. I love turning the pages and hearing the pages turn when we're together. I like reading the words from the page. And boy, I, I tell you what, I've got, what is this? This is goat skin. This bad boy, oh, supple. It's so supple. Remember when my, Son Hayden was real young and we got him his first Bible and he was just rubbing it and rubbing it and rubbing it one day and Hannah said, what are you doing, Hayden? That's just genuine, that's not even genuine leather. That's like, like that fake leather stuff. And he goes, I want it to feel like dad's Bible. 
And she goes, it's not going to feel like dad's bounding. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. And Hayden says, it's getting suppler and suppler. <laughs> I love the feel. We like these tangible things. But you know what? It's religion. It's religion. Symbols and signs and amulets and charms and even the leather feel of a Bible or, or church building. My friends, these are physical, tangible things that may help, they might encourage. You know, the faithful Catholic who prays the rosary has that tangible thing in hand to, to feel what they're doing and to draw to what they're doing. The problem is the tangible things can have a tendency to draw us into the natural and away from the supernatural. God did not intend for leather boxes to be on the forehead. No offense to my Jewish friends. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking spiritually. Have it literally, have it in mind. He's talking about rightly handling the word of truth. Have it in your hand. And he's talking about meditating on Yahweh's Torah constantly. Have it on your forehead. And he's talking about speaking it out faithfully. Have it in your mouth. That's the point of this. Because signs and symbols, again, can easily shift our focus from worship that's in spirit and in truth to working in the flesh. I got to have my seat. I got to have my cup of coffee. I got to have my locale. I got to have my particular version of the Bible. I got to have my cross to rub between my fingers while we're singing songs of praise. Do you? No, you don't. You gotta have Jesus. You gotta have the spirit of the living God. And whether you're reading out of an old torn paperback Bible or a brand new leather one makes no difference. Remember what Jesus said, it is these that testify of me. So beware the trappings of the phylacteries and the tangible symbols. You might recall over in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, or sorry, Matthew 23, Jesus got after the Pharisees saying they do their deeds, Matthew 23, verse five, to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They just love to be noticed. And even today, you'll see some of the ultra-Orthodox walking around with phylacteries that are so big, they've got to have neck problems. Big honking things because, man, I got the scriptures on my mind hey, get the word in your heart. In fact, that's where it's treasured most. I treasure your word in my heart. That's Psalm 109 tells us. This is spiritual and it's much more effective and important in life changing than the physical. Well, back to the passage, but think this through with me. This is all connected. We come out of the Passover teaching of chapter 12. We come in and we hear a little bit about the firstborn, but then immediately launch into this teaching on the feast of unleavened bread. And now, verse 11, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. That is literally the first opening of the womb. So the first one to come out of the womb and the first offering of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. But every first offering of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem, then you shall break its neck. 
and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Wait, wait, what? Obscure? What's going on here? Poor donkey. (laughs) The point is, if a man owned a donkey that had a cute little firstborn foal, have you ever seen a donkey's foal? They're adorable. Little horses foal, we see them getting born. Cute little, they struggle to stand up. God says, you need to offer a lamb or you need to kill the donkey, the foal. You need to break its, I mean, it's brutal. You don't just offer the donkey's foal. You gotta break its neck if it's the firstborn of your donkey. Why? And they would take an ax handle, literally, and smack it hard on the back of the neck of the donkey's foal to kill it. That seems, well, it's unusual. It seems a little brutal. Why? Well, first of all, understand this. The reason why you had to break the neck of the donkey's foal rather than sacrifice it was to be sure that it wasn't, didn't look like you were offering a sacrifice of an unclean animal. So you could not sacrifice the donkey's foal in the way that you could sacrifice a lamb because that was special, that was unique. That was a clean animal being sacrificed to God as opposed to the foal of the donkey, which was not a clean animal. And so therefore it could not be sacrificed. It just had to have its neck broken if you didn't have a lamb for that sacrifice. But understand this. God's first choice was not to kill the donkey's foal. In the Bible, the donkey has somewhat of a negative image. And we could go over uh, several verses. I'll just give you four examples. Genesis 16, 12. Ishmael is called a wild donkey of a man, indicating an uncontrollable nature. And so donkey is seen as uncontrollable. Genesis 49, 14, and 15. The donkey is a description of a beast of slavery and burden. Jeremiah 2, 24. The donkey portrays a wild, weary, empty passion as a description of one who's just out of control and their passions are meaningless and emptiness before the Lord. Jeremiah 22, 19. A donkey's burial is literally to be chucked out of the city onto the side of the road. That's a donkey's burial. So so it's not a positive picture, not a good track record for the donkey until the prophecy. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you get it? The donkey's foal carried the lamb of God who died in the place of donkeys like us. A lamb for a donkey a lamb for what would otherwise be a beast of burden. If your donkey has a firstborn foal, offer a lamb as its price of redemption. It's a beautiful picture. You might say, well, what about the firstborn human child? Read on, verse 14. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb for every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Wait, so 
So is the firstborn child to be sacrificed? Oh, no, no, no. He's to be redeemed. And we find out in Numbers 18, verse 16, exactly what that looks like as to their redemption price. From a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver. Five is the number of grace. Silver is the picture of redemption in the Bible. Five shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras. And what he's saying there is when there is a firstborn son brought into the world, you pay a redemption price of five shekels of silver. You know, they still do that today among Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews. On the 31st day following the birth of the child, a special redemption price. In fact, they have silver redemption coins that are specifically minted for redemption in Israel. And they would pay the, the five coins, the silver redemption coins for their firstborn sons. And if your parents didn't do it, if you were a Jew, your parents were Jewish and you realize later in life they never paid the redemption price, then when you come of age, it's your responsibility to pay the redemption price. The five silver shekels which makes me think about what Peter said. And it is a passage we have returned to hundreds of times over the years. 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So put it all together. This whole section uh, completes now the Passover narrative. It's blending three concepts together, the Passover lamb and that perfect sacrifice, Chag Hamatzot, now together with the law of the firstborn. And what happens is when you take all three of those and you draw back, you get a beautiful, completed portrait of Jesus. Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist said, John 1, is the Lamb of God who, like Hamatzot, takes away the sin of the world. And Colossians 1.15 tells us he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Doesn't mean he's the first one created. It means Jesus is the firstborn in position and authority. But he's all three, Passover lamb, unleavened bread, and he is the firstborn. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The Passover narrative is all about Jesus as it portrays him once again for us. So verse 17, now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And it's thought that there was warring going on on that Mediterranean coast where the Philistines were then residing. And so God says, you know, if I take them that way, along what's called the Via Maris, the, the road by the sea, that's an easier, quicker route right into the promised land. But if he takes them that way, it's the worst way for them to go. Listen, sometimes the quick route is not the right one. Sometimes the fast, easy one is gonna cause more problems. And God knows, he looks ahead, he sees what's ahead. So he says, I'm not gonna take them that way. They'll wanna go back to Egypt. Hence, 
Verse 18, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. And God will do that. He will often lead us in roundabout ways because, listen, it's not just about the destination. It's about the sanctification. And the sanctification is what he's doing. You know, it's what he's been doing for the last four months in your life and mine. This has been a tough season for many people. It is about sanctification. Don't miss it. Don't miss what God is really doing. Oh, it's been hard. I know. It's been long. I know. It's been frustrating. I get it. It's about sanctification. Sanctification is never easy. And don't think I don't understand, and I may have said this recently, so forgive me for repeating myself, but we've been two years in the process now of trying to bring Christopher home. He knows that, Judy knows that, Cheryl and I and our kids know that, and we realize as we've gone through this process, and we're getting close, we really are, we're almost there. But as I look back, I think I would not have chosen this long road. I would have chosen Christopher in a heartbeat, but the road to get here, isn't there an easier way? There probably was an easier way, but there's not a more sanctifying way. And sometimes, sometimes you want me to tell you, I'll tell you what God's done in my heart in the last two years of teaching me what faith means, what it means to not have what you desire immediately, even if what you desire is a good, godly thing. He has a route that he wants to take you, wants to take me. He'll get us to the destination, but it's about the sanctification that we walk through on the way there. Verse 19, so Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And you may recall, we didn't, it hasn't been that long since we read this, Genesis chapter 50, verses around 22 through 24, somewhere in there, that Joseph made his brothers promise to take his bones out of Egypt. He's on his deathbed and he says, make sure you take me, take my body, take my bones back to the promised land whenever you go. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Joshua chapter 24, verse 32 tells of them taking the bones of Joseph and of his brothers and depositing them there at Shechem in the promised land. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, if we get to Joshua 24. But get this, Joseph spent 93 of his 110 years in Egypt. And you know what? He was never home. Egypt was never his home. He never completely settled. He was second in command only to Pharaoh over all Egypt. It was not his home. Canaan, the promised land, take, take me back when you go. That was home to Joseph. Where do you consider home? See, I love my home. The house that we built, I love the property that it's on. I love quiet evenings there in the cool of the summer. I love my home. I love Whidbey Island. I love being in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. I love this place, a garden spot of the world. Don't tell anyone, it's beautiful. 
I love my home. But this world is not my home. Hey, I'm an American patriot. I love my country. It breaks my heart to be seeing so much of the lawlessness going on right now, so much of the tearing at the fabric of our nation and our constitution and all that's good in American history. I love America, but it's not my home. I have a home in heaven, a home that is waiting for me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away. Hey, those of you who want to go back to the way things were four or five months ago, we're not gonna because you can't go back. We are going to a better country. We are going forward and we're going right up and out of this world. And by the way, this is what I am once for you. This is what Yahweh desires for you. That, that if you were to die tonight in Christ, guess what? Your bones would not be left behind, but would be caught up. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Lock, stock and barrel, up you go. Glorified in a heartbeat, in a moment. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall, listen, so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the end game. That's the desire of the Father. That's what Yahweh wants. That's why he reveals himself as I am all the way back here with Israel. I am with you. I am among you. I want you with me. That's, that's my home. That's our great desire. Oh, don't lose that as things get all messed up in this world in this home, this world is not your home. Verse 20, and then they set out from Sukkot and camped in Etam on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day or by night. And, and apparently they did. Wasn't just daytime traveling. Sometimes traveling in the desert is best at night when it's a little cooler. And so God would give them covering in the daytime and light and warmth in the nighttime. He himself, in fact, Psalm 105, 39 said, he spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to illumine by night. How awesome is that? God was their shade. He was their light. He was their warmth. God, again, revealing himself as Yahweh. I am right here. I am with you. By the way, we're gonna make seven pauses with the children of Israel. There may have been more, but there are only seven listed in scripture as they journey through the wilderness, seven stops along the Exodus route. And stop number one, campsite number one, if you will, is Sukkot. Sukkot, there in verse 20, and Sukkot means tent. Okay, you could call it tent town. Sukkot was right there at the border of Egypt. That's where everybody gathered. So all the Jews throughout Egypt, and they were mostly in Goshen, 
but some perhaps spread out, all gathered. They met up this mass army of Israel. All the people together met up at Sukkot on the edge of Egypt, ready to launch. So they start off right there at, at Tent Town. Then they go to campsite number two, which is again in verse 20, a Tom on the edge of the wilderness. You could even say a Tom was there on the edge of the unknown. They've left Egypt, but now they're coming out and it's getting more and more rugged until they're right there on the verge of what's going to happen next. Edge of the wilderness, unknown. But you know what I love here? Jot this down in your Bible. Atom means with them, with them. And he was on the verge of the unknown. He was with them. If you stand on the edge of the unknown and the uncertain in your life, guess what? I am. He is with you on the edge, going with you out into that which is unknown. They didn't just receive travel orders. Okay, here's where I want you to go and here's your, uh, here's your AAA triptych. Take that and, and off you go. Take your Google Maps. No, it wasn't just travel orders. It was his presence that they received. We'll see this repeated. Even as Moses says, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. And God says, my presence shall go with you. He says it over and over and over. I'm with you. You're not alone in this. Colossians chapter two, verse six. Paul said, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. Paul didn't say, as you receive the doctrine of Christianity, Paul didn't say, as you receive the creed of your religion, he says, as you receive Christ Jesus, walk with him. We see this parallel right here as God, I am, is with them at Atom. He's with them. They receive the Lord in his presence, so walk with him. So trust him on the journey. Paul says, having been firmly rooted, being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. And now it starts to get interesting. Verse one, chapter 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihahirot, between Migdal and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. This is God's travel plan. <laughs> Go back. He sets Pharaoh up. He's not done with Pharaoh. He's not done with Egypt. He's got to close the book completely on that chapter. So he says, I want you to head back from where you, they at this point perhaps were even approaching the promised land. I don't know, it wasn't that far. When God says, I want you to head back the other way, go back east and camp there between those three places. When the king of Egypt was told, verse five, that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people and they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. He took 600 select chariots, so the best of the best, 
and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So it wasn't just 600 chariots. It was his 600 best who went first and then the rest. They came riding out. This was a, this, this was a tank of that day. The chariot was a major fighting tool for warfare. So they're all, you know, marshaled up and ready to fight and heading out. Verse eight, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is now the final time that his heart is hardened. And he chased after the sons of Israel. As note this, the sons of Israel were going out boldly. The word boldly is with high hand. They're going, woohoo, we're going out. We got it. We conquered Egypt. This is the best. And their hands are up and they're praising God and they're marching along and they're super confident and everything's just going great. Then the Egyptians, verse nine, chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside Piharot and Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out, to the Lord. Turn all the way back to Exodus chapter two, verse 23, and listen to this. It came about in the course of those days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And it's the same word, they cried out to the Lord. The cry of the sons of Israel bookends their experience with Egypt from beginning to end. And now they cry out to the Lord again. What an amazing plan. God says, all right, here's what I want you to do. Moses, I know, you know, promised land is right ahead there, but turn back. Go, go the other way and, and camp. God was, and, and I say this absolutely respectfully, God was setting them up. He was intentionally setting Israel up. Who has felt backed into a corner in the last four months? Is it possible that God set you up, set me up? I don't mean to play games with us, but he sets up for sanctification. He sets up that we might see the mighty hand of God. And so here we are at campsite number three. First there was Sukkot, then there was Etam. Now campsite number three, and we're just gonna call it rocking a hard place. Because now that's where they are. They are stuck here, and if you note the names, Pihahirot means the mouth of the caves, and Migdal means tower. Baal-Zephon means God of the north, and it's thought that there was a holy mountain there that was, that was dedicated to Baal of the Canaanites, the pagan god Baal. So in this location, we think we can pinpoint where they were, that there's a, a large beachhead that's on the western shore of the Red Sea Gulf of Aqaba, a beachhead that, that would be big enough for the sizable camp of Israel and reachable only coming off the Sinai Peninsula by a narrow passageway with high mountains on either side, high rocky crags. And Pihahi wrote would be on one side Migdal towering on the other side, bales of fawn. So they're behind them, basically a narrow passage and mountains in front of them, the sea. Nowhere to go, no way out, no place to hide. 
To camp here was to be boxed in. And again, you could either go back through towering mountains or you could go forward into the sea. Verse 10. Again, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They became very frightened. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Side note, Egypt was famous for its tombs. There were graves all over Egypt. The pyramids and the tombs there, legendary. Egypt was known historically by some as the country of tombs. And they say, was there because there's no graves in Egypt? I mean, they're not thinking with their right minds. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, verse 12, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Really? I mean, seriously? Is it really better to, to lose freedom and liberty and return to the old paths of slavery and bondage? It's, it's mind-boggling. But you know, distress unchecked demoralizes faith. When we allow our distress, when we allow our fear to overtake and drive us, faith Faith begins to shrivel away. Faith, faith drives out distress. Trusting the Lord brings in confidence. But when we get into the soul and begin to spin out scenarios of fear and frustration and distress, man, faith has a hard time with that. It, 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 it gets checked at the door. And the people of Israel now see Egypt coming up behind them and they are scared to death. Verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. I like that. <laughs> You'll never see them again forever. And he says, as for you, oh, then, the Lord, then he says, the Lord will fight for you. I like this, while you keep Silent. Shh, shut it. The Lord is the one fighting. He's the one who called for us to camp here. He's in charge of this. He will fight for you. You keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. <laughs> what? Lord, if we go forward, we go right into the sea. That a problem? Tell them to start marching. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Listen, God says, tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Why? Because he already told them he was taking them to the promised land. He did not say, I'm going to take you to the beachhead on the Gulf of Aqaba. He didn't say, I'm going to lead you right up to Pihahirot and Migdal. No, I'm going to take you to the land of promise. That was the guarantee. Therefore, regardless of where they were, 
Go forward. Move forward. Step out. Stop your whining and start your walking. What he's doing here is, is in telling them to move forward, he's saying, trust me. I got this. It's not your concern. You just go where I tell you to go. And right now I'm telling you, start walking. Uh, can you imagine who were the first few Israelites taking steps toward the water and stopping and looking back? And seriously? Or, or perhaps it was Moses because he had to stretch out the staff. He had to strike the sea. He, he stood there right on the verge as he starts walking toward the water. And the people look around and there's, there's Egypt behind us, all the chariots. And Moses is heading into the sea. This guy's crazy. Tell him to go forward. Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now pause with me just for a moment. So here we are at the Red Sea, right? And there are those who try to make the argument that the Red Sea was not the large Gulf of Aqaba, which is one of two fingers of the Red Sea that come up on either side of the Sinai Peninsula. There are those who say, ah, no, it was a reed sea. That is a, a soft kind of marshy, six to eight inches of water in different places, pools gathered about up in the northern area of Egypt, and they came to the reed sea. That's, that's what that was. And the reason some will say that is Red Sea in the Hebrew Scriptures, and we've told you this before, it's Yom Sup. And Yom Sup means Sea of, well, some will translate it Sea of Reeds. If your Bible in the parentheses notes that or, or in the margin notes it as the Sea of Reeds, that's actually not correct. We're not talking about freshwater reeds necessarily. A more literal translation would be Sea of Weeds. And Yamsup, Sea of Weeds, can be used and is used in the Bible both of freshwater bulrushes and saltwater seaweed, which was all over the Red Sea. So Yom Sup describes the Red Sea. It is not this reed sea that some people have tried to talk about. Biblically speaking, Yom Sup always indicates the Red Sea. It's always used as a name for the Red Sea as we understand it and know it today. You can skip ahead to the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, verse 36, where Stephen is preaching and he says, Moses led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And Red Sea there in the Greek is Erythros Thalassae, which is Red Sea. Unquestionably, they knew what they were talking about. Reed Sea. Again, some say, well, that's, that's more explainable. You know, you got all those people, perhaps two, three million, and how, how they're going to cross. But if it was a reed sea, and you happen to have a hot wind blowing one day, hot eastern wind blows and kind of dries up a patch, and they start marching through, you know. Now, you could take care of 16 inches of, of water, and the pools could dry up. In they go. A shallow bog did exist in the region that some would claim, long ago between the Gulf of Suez and the Bitter Lakes of the North, marshland with reeds and, and pools and such, sloggy to go through it. But if that's the case, if that were where they went, if that 
was what truly happened, that the Reed Sea was the walk through, then the miracle was greater than previously thought. Far greater because Pharaoh's entire army was drowned in six inches of water. Doesn't make any sense at all. Furthermore, the wording that we see in verses 22 and 29 that we'll come to in just a moment describes walls of water to their right and to their left, that the congregation of Israel witnessed these walls of water firsthand. And skip ahead just for a moment to chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. In the midst of their praise song on the other side of the Red Sea, they sing at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. That does not sound like little pools, my friends. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. That's the army of Pharaoh. They sank like lead in the mighty waters, the majestic waters, not the little pools of reeds. The biblical narrative portrays a sea the Red Sea is understood as we know it, not some little boggy marshland. There are 25 references to the Red Sea parting in the Hebrew scriptures. This is a big deal in the memory of the Jewish people. And the oldest record of this account that we have is resting in your hands tonight. It's right here in the Bible. No other notions come close in the timeline of history. In fact, the first time it was suggested, get this, note this, the first time it was even suggested that perhaps it wasn't the Red Sea, that maybe it was the Reed Sea, and these other speculations began to come up, wasn't until the 11th century AD by a Jewish rabbi named Rashi who tried to identify it with the marshlands of the Nile Delta in the north. 2,500 years after the event itself happened, one guy says, well, what if it was here? The records of the time speak very clearly and the belief all the way up to that point has always been it was the Red Sea that they crossed. Why would anyone come up with something else? What's the point of saying, well, what if it was the Reed Sea instead? My friends, the devil is always working to undermine the credibility of God's word. From the beginning, remember what the serpent saith to Eve? I know that's what he said, but is that really what he meant? Did God really say this? Just, just create a sense of doubt. The longer I've walked through this word and taught the Bible, the more absolutely convinced I've become that every word is spoke from God, that this is the truth. And we don't need to undermine it. We might not always fully understand, but it is what it is. He says what he means. He means what he says. And again, I read this earlier. Let me read this to you again. Isaiah 63, verse 11. His people remember the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? That would be, I am. Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths, not the pools, the depths, 
Like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And by the way, we never fully realize the glory of God until we find ourselves in a place that we cannot get through on our own. That's where we see his glory. It's not in the easy times. It's not when we're tiptoeing through the tulips or walking through the reeds that we see the glory. It's when we're going through pain and hardship or distress or turmoil. That's where the glory of God shines. That's where we see him at work. That's where we cry out to Yahweh and understand he is with us. And so with our lives, we can whine and complain like the sons of Israel. We can cry out or worse, we can just head right back to Egypt in the old ways. Or we can cease striving. And as Moses said, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Verse 17, as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go, after, go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots and his horsemen. And by the way, that's something else to realize that part of the work that God's doing when he is sanctifying part of his supernatural work is to send messages loud and clear right into the camp of the enemy so that the enemy knows and sees that God is glorified. Remember what I said before, God wasn't quite done with Egypt. Egypt had to know beyond the shadow of a doubt the glory of the Lord. And it would take the wiping out of their entire army in the Red Sea. Now watch this. Verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood now behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness. Yet it did not, yet it did, it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night long. God himself provides a barrier, moves into position between Israel stuck there on the beachhead, and, and here comes the, the army of Egypt, and God stood in between. He moved in between. He was leading them out, now he comes in behind them, I think again of Psalm 139, verse five, you have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. See, that's the Lord. I am has us covered round about. It is not his desire we get attacked from behind or we get attacked from the front. He is in both positions. By the way, it's the angel of God. Remember we mentioned a long time ago, we were talking about the Malak Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And this is the one time where it's the angel of God. He's called the Malak Elohim. Who is this? I believe it's the same theophany we've seen, the visible representation of the invisible God. We've seen him a number of times now. And to be specific, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse one, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul declares Jesus was with Israel in the wilderness. Christ was behind them, followed them in the wilderness, went before them. The glory of the Lord. This is Jesus that we're talking about. When you find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place, always choose the rock, <laughs> the rock that is Christ. Isaiah 28, 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes will not be disturbed. All right, watch the story. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. Sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, this would be between two and 6 a.m. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. They tried to ride in, into the sea. The cloud now that's, that's behind, that's protecting uh, on the backside of Israel as they're going through the sea, the cloud, the fire there, and the Egyptians are trying to ride toward it. And as they come near it, he just brings utter confusion. Verse 25, he caused their chariot wheels to swerve. A better translation is to be removed. The wheels came off. <laughs> and he made them drive with difficulty. Yeah, without wheels, that would be a tough drive through the sea there. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for Yahweh is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And so they recognized their fate. And then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Think about that, 600 chariots and then all the chariots. This was the entire force of Egypt wiped out. The waters returned, verse 28, covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I've told you before, there's a great picture in a, an old picture Bible we used to have it in my home, big old white family Bible and you'd open it up and several of the pictures and one was of Israel walking through the Red Sea and a little girl holding her dad's hand, pointing up and you see these walls of water and just inside the wall, you see this whale swimming by. I don't know if what they saw was like that, if they could see animal life swimming inside, just inside the wall, or if it's just this. But the whole idea, it's, it's stunning to think about. 
walls of water. Man, I'll tell you what, to walk through there, you would have to have some measure of trust. I mean, even a mustard seed, just to go in at all, because that would have been an awesome, awesome sight. Verse 30, thus, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And it's uh, rabbis actually debate whether they could look across the Red Sea and see Egyptian bodies rolling up onto the shore corpses, or if they actually saw Egyptian bodies rolling up onto the shore on, on the Western side, but they could see it. They could see the remnant of the wiped out army of Egypt. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And a couple of things I want to note here at the end. First off, note his servant Moses. It's the first time this is what Moses is called. First time in the Bible he's called his servant Moses. He's going to be called this. And I find it interesting. I don't know if there's a reason behind this or a parallel, but I suspect He's called the servant Moses 39 times. A number of books in the Hebrew scriptures, 39. And so the servant of Moses is named that 39 times. And by the way, the very last time he's named that is in Revelation chapter 15, verse three. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29 tells us something else. And this is interesting. So try and pull this into the picture of what we've just read. Hebrews 11:29 says, by faith, they passed through the sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So the Hebrew pastor says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. But if you're reading verse 31, you note that when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. So it seems like Moses is saying the people believed after they passed through the Red Sea, but the Hebrew pastor says, by faith they passed through the Red Sea. So which one is it? Was it faith after or was it faith before or faith going through? And listen, get this, faith is dynamic. It's both. It's both. It's that God gave them faith to start walking or they never would have gone into the walls of water. They had to have some measure of faith. And note this, this is also from a... a this is from Nahum Sarna's commentary. So this is from a Jewish perspective, and I thought this was really interesting. He said the Hebrew notion of faith in the Old Testament scriptures is not faith in a creed, it is trust in God. I read that and I went, that's what we've been trying to talk about for years here. That it's not about a creed or a religion, it's, it's about trusting Jesus it's about looking to the Lord and knowing he's going to get me through. I don't know how, but he's going to do it. It's not going to the statement of faith and trying to find something in there that's going to make me feel better. It's trusting him. And so God gave them enough mustard seed, a tiny amount, but enough to step out. And then to take another step and then another uh, tremulous step and then another as they began to walk through oh oh man I hope see we have this picture we think someone with great faith just marches along and everything's great no 
That's not great. Great faith is trusting God, though everything else looks terrifying. Great faith means, I don't know how you're going to do this, Lord. But you said you would, so here we go. Great faith is not, you know, a nice tie and a starch suit. Great faith is trusting God just enough, just enough to step out. To, as he said to Moses, go forward. That's all you need, just just enough to take a step. Can you take a step? That's faith. And then as you go, every step builds faith upon faith upon faith. It increases. And when they get to the other side and they see how God did it and what God's plan was all along, more faith. Now they're cheering. In fact, they're going to sing a great song because faith just explodes. But they move, listen, from faith to faith. From little faith to a bigger faith. That's how faith works. Paul said in Romans 1.17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. That's just enough faith to say, okay, Lord, I trust you. To faith, which is a faith to live a life in the care and, and, the, and the watchful comfort of the Lord. Faith to faith. He says, it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Faith is not this Beautiful picture of a religious man by a stained glass window. It's, it's just walking, man. It's walking, and even when I struggle and when I trip and when I fall and when I'm uncertain and when I'm distressed, but I still, man, faith is faith if I'm just going, Jesus, I need you. You realize that at the very beginning of all this, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, when they cried out to the Lord, that was faith because it was to the Lord. And here again, as their cheering and their joy turns into fear and and distress as they see the army of Egypt, they cry out to the Lord, that's faith. Because it's directed to the Lord. And so faith we see just increasing. We know that faith comes from hearing. Man, just hear the word. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 9, and hearing by the word of Christ. So the point is this, he gives us faith in the first place. You wouldn't have it if he didn't give it to you. He gives you your first taste of faith and you receive that and you trust him and it begins to grow with every step. God's not saying, run the journey. He's saying, take the step. He's not saying, break the tape. He's saying, go forward. Just keep moving forward. Trust me. And faith brings me to faith which develops and increases into more faith as I walk through the sea, whatever the sea. Because it's not just about the destination. It's about the sanctification. Galatians chapter five, verse 25 says, if we live by the spirit, then let us also, what? Walk by the spirit, step by step. And when we go through turbulent, unsettling seas piled up like walls to the right and to the left, listen, if we're walking with him, if we're in his presence, guess what happens? We're going to be washed clean. We're going to be baptized in the process. Remember what we read just a few minutes ago, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2? Paul says, and all our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what Paul's doing there is he's speaking in type. That in some ways, the Red Sea experience prefigures 
baptism because it took faith to go in. Faith precedes the waters of baptism. You don't get baptized by no choice of your own. You, you believe and you're baptized. You have faith and you go into the water. And so he makes that parallel. But listen, though it prefigures baptism, like baptism, the Red Sea meant far more. The Red Sea experience is about an immersive journey of faith. Why would we think our lives should be any different? Why would we think it's a cakewalk? It's not a cakewalk. It's a walk through the sea with enemies threatening from behind, walls of water on either side, uncertainty in our humanity, but trust in his divinity. And so we walk by faith and we're sanctified. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Chapter 15, verse one, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Oh, I wanted to do that chapter so bad, we'll have to save it for Sunday. But they sang a song. Chapter 15 busts out into this amazing song. It's called the Song of Moses. It's the first song recorded in the Bible. The Song of Moses. It's the first variation of the redemption theme that returns at the very last of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 15. And by the way, it's the last time that Moses is called the servant of the Lord, God's servant, Moses. And it's the song of Moses coupled with the song of the lamb. And we're gonna sing that song, try to learn those words because we need to know these songs. <laughs> we need to know these songs and here's why. I, I want to know the song of Moses and the Lamb now. Because how much better to sing songs like this of praise on the other side of the Red Sea before we're saved. How much greater the faith. Father, would you give us that kind of faith? Faith to trust you before we go into the water. Faith to trust you when we are between a rock and a hard place. Faith to trust you, Lord, when we are pinned in and it seems like there's nowhere to go and you say go forward, but to us going forward looks disastrous. Lord, give us faith to praise you in that place, to worship you at that time. For Father, worship from our position of distress. Worship when we don't know where we're gonna go from here. Worship like that is all the more sweet. It strengthens us, it comforts us, Lord. And I know it's sweet to your ears. I pray for the Bridge Fellowship for faith to worship like that. I pray for myself to trust you in my distress with that kind of praise. We thank you for your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.